Well, God is a dreamer. He's got a big dream. What he wanted is and wants is meaningful relationships with individual human beings. And to be meaningful, God realized and knew that they had to be voluntary so people could choose. And God knew that some people would choose to love him and he would be so pleased. And he also knew that other people would choose to reject him and his offer and break his heart. But God still had the dream that all people would choose to repent from sin and love him. In fact, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So to make that possible, God sent Jesus into this world to pay the price to eradicate sin, which was innocent blood had to be shed. And in, uh, Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he said, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. So those who respond in faith and in repentance become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And then it's our job to share that, this message of reconciliation, to be the link between God and uh, somebody who's far from God and to help bring them together. And sometimes that can be pretty challenging. Um. Miguel Cervantes, 1547, wrote what became the play The Man of La Mancha, and uh, he, he wrote the book. But um, in it, he has this knight, Don Quixote, who goes out to right all wrongs and to take on impossible fights. And uh, Cervantes, actually, the author, spent over half of his life in prison for his uh, religious convictions. And in it, um, he sends out Don Quixote just to fight uh, the impossible things, to right every wrong. And uh, in fact, he, the song, you know, to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear the unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, to follow the quest, to follow the star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell with a heavenly cause. Well, he was told before he went out on this quest you're going to take such a beating. And they were right. He did. But he says, winning and losing doesn't matter, but only if you follow the quest. Follow the quest is to follow the Christ and to dream big dreams because you know that people that you know and love, that God loves, are far from God. And you dream about the day when they come to, to know Jesus. And you pray for the time when they repent and they believe. And you hope for the moment when they ask you to lead them to the Savior. And you say, well, Pastor Ty, I've done that over and over. I've prayed for this so-and-so in my life for so long. And my heart has been broken over their uh, non-relationship with God or their broken relationship with God. And so I'm discouraged. Well, I would tell you, don't quit. Keep praying. Don't give up on what God can do. You don't know how the story will end. And the fervent prayers of righteous people make a big difference. So when the dream dies or is broken, sometimes, you know, in our walk of faith, there are twists and there are turns, there are bumps, there are bruises, there are setbacks and heartaches that we don't anticipate. So we're talking today about those who leave the faith, people that you know, people that you've heard of, people that you love. 1997, a youth pastor named Joshua Harris became an author and published a book named I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Sold over a million copies. And in fact, one of those came to our house and we read it and talked about it. It's basically encouraging purity in relationships. And at least uh, in that, that's his major thrust of how do we help people to live pure lives 
uh, before they uh, get married. He also wrote Boy Meets Girl and Stop Dating the Church, Fall in Love with the Family of God, and Sex is Not the Problem, Lust is. He went on to get married. They had three children together. He became pastor of a mega church. And then three or four years ago, he decided, you know, I never got to go to seminary. Maybe I should go do that. So he stopped pastoring the church and he went uh, to uh, Regent Seminary. But then two weeks ago, he really just blew away the evangelical world by announcing that he's, uh, his marriage is over and that he's left the Christian faith. And uh, in fact, he apologized in his statement for contributing to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. In fact, then he went on to say this, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I'm not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. So this was on an Instagram, a kind of a shoulder over the shot, looking at a, a placid mountain lake as if everything is calm and peaceful. Well, what should we do when public figures or beloved friends or even family members leave the faith? How do we react lovingly? And how do we, at the same time, remain true to Jesus Christ? I mean, Christian parents dream that their children will learn to love Jesus. Christ, through their influence, will grow up in a home where it's consistent with what you learn at church, what you read in the Bible, and that they too will become fully devoted followers of Christ as adults, that they will make the shift from a child's faith to the faith of an adult. But what do you do when your dream dies or never comes true? I mean, sometimes parents dream dreams for their children that are, are crushed or, or broken or can never become reality. There's parents in the Bible this way. There are lots of them, actually. You start just at the beginning, Adam and Eve. Can you imagine when they learned that one of their sons had murdered the other one because he had gotten so mad at him? Or Isaac and Rebekah had twins, Esau and Jacob. And then Jacob managed to uh, steal his brother's birthright and then his blessing. And then he ran away and hid because he knew his brother was so mad he was going to take revenge. And Esau felt betrayed by everybody in his family. And so he became very angry, and he went and he just uh, married a, a pagan wife from the culture that they were in, and, when, and then another, and then he saw that it broke his parents' heart, so he did it again. Or in Judges 13 to 16, you have Manoah and his wife who uh, are infertile and uh, can't bear children and just grieving over it, and then God's messenger shows up and says, good news, you're going to have a son. He's going to be dedicated to the service of God for his whole life, and uh, so take good care of him and raise him right. And uh, his son is named Samson, <clears throat> who grew up powerful, but with complete lack of discipline or, and abused his power. He ends up uh, shacking up with the daughter of one of their arch enemies, the Philistines. She broke him down. He was arrested, imprisoned, his eyes gouged out. He became a shell of his former self, and God was still able to use him, even in that condition, still chose to. Or you look at David. His children broke his heart. His fourth oldest son, Adonijah, <coughs> who the Bible says kind of has an interesting side comment, David had never counseled or disciplined him had never corrected the young person. He attempted to take the kingdom away from David by force while David was on his deathbed and Adonijah died in the attempt. 
In 2 Samuel 13, David's oldest son, Amnon, forced his half-sister Tamar into a sexual encounter. She was willing to marry him, but he wouldn't wait. So he raped her and then abandoned her. This made David very angry, but there's no record of David taking any action against that son. So her brother, Absalom, schemed for two years, finally managed to manipulate Amnon's murder, which was motivated by revenge. Then Absalom went away, ran away to hide, and David wept bitterly, but there's no record of him doing anything to correct Absalom. In fact, he finally received Absalom back into Jerusalem. Absalom becomes emboldened, leads a conspiracy large enough to make David run out of the city to save his, whole li his own life. And in the ensuing conflict, Absalom is killed. Um, David is heartbroken. So, uh, 2 Samuel 18, it says, The king was deeply moved, went into the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is the same guy who wrote Psalm 34. Verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Or Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You know, at another point, David had another big dream that was broken, had to do with his hope to build the temple. So David went and sat before the Lord. And when you've had a dream broken, that's one of the best things to do, just to quietly come sit before the Lord. In fact, even at the end of the service, if you want to just come sit at the foot of the cross or over on the steps and just to pause before the Lord, David did that and he prayed. 2 Samuel 7, and halfway through his prayer, it says, He's talking to God, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you. There's no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. I mean, David's prayer of brokenness turns into a prayer of gratitude for a God that he can trust and follow. What about Jesus? Twelve disciples, one of them betrayed him. Jesus even knew it in advance. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels records at the Last Supper, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. The person who's dipping his hand in the same dish with me is going to betray me. It would be better for him than if he had never been born. Or what about Paul? He was abandoned and abused by ministry partners from time to time. 1 Timothy 1, he's talking to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Death of a dream. What do you do? Have you ever heard God say no to a dream? I mean, David wanted to build a temple to the glory of God. God said no. Paul wanted to preach in Rome. God said no. Go sit in jail. Just write letters. Maybe you want to become a missionary. The mission board said no. You want to marry a certain person, live in love forever. And true love said no. And God said no. What do you do then? What do you do when your dream dies? See, rather than let it be an emotional thing, you can determine how you're going to respond. It may have been a good dream. Sometimes sin or doubt derail our dreams, but sometimes God has other plans. Can you trust God with your broken dream, with your heartache?
So number one, refuse to quit dreaming. The dream isn't everything, even though we feel that way. You've been blessed with a whole lot more than that dream. You are more than your history. You are more than your marriage. You are more than your family. You are more than your job. You are more than your ministry. You are more than your children. When your dream dies, you have a whole lot left. And to take time sitting before the Lord to say, what's left when the dream dies? See, our adversary, adversary will score a major victory if, because of your disappointment, you stop dreaming. The test of a person's character is what it takes to get the person discouraged. Christianity Today did a whole panel discussion on this unbelievable and discouraging Joshua Harris story. Drew Dyke is the managing editor of Leadership Journal at Christianity Today. And I took excerpts from it here. You could actually Google it and find the whole uh, uh, article. But he says, this is pretty shocking. And there's grief and there's loss and it morphs into anger because you feel betrayed. He said some of the reactions are kind of in two extremes. One extreme is that people say, well, good for him. Look, at he was honest and authentic. He says, I wouldn't be one of those that joins into praising someone for walking away from their faith. On the other hand, the opposite reaction of lashing out at the person or just starting to bash them or write them off entirely or import all kind of bad motivations on their part, that's not helpful either. Those reactions can actually push people further away. We would want to be gentle even as we express our grief and our shock. He was asked, what if you hear this kind of news about a loved one? And he said, well, that's different because the stakes are higher. If it's your son or your daughter or your spouse, then there's a whole relational history. And he says, I've talked to a lot of parents that have had their grown children make a decision to leave the church or even the faith. And often the ways they respond are very counterproductive. You think you, you can tell them what they need to do or start preaching at them or get, and, or get incredibly defensive. But then there's a lot of white-hot emotions that arise, especially in the immediate aftermath of somebody saying, I'm, I'm out. I'm not a Christian anymore. So you need to take a deep breath and take a step back and really be careful how you approach the topic of faith going forward. He's asked, well, what are some things you should absolutely never say to somebody who just decided to tell you that they've left Christianity? He says, well, saying something like, quote, you're just doing that because you're compromising morally and you can't hack it being a Christian anymore, so you've changed your creed to match your conduct, because that's probably not helpful, even if it's true. And it won't be helpful facilitating productive dialogue into the future. He said, I think another thing people get wrong is that they immediately try to argue. He said, and I love apologetics. And they're absolutely essential, and we need to study. We need to know what we believe and why. But when you jump right into that after someone tells you they no longer believe, that can be unhelpful. He says, I think the first thing to say instead is just to affirm your love for them, to say, I understand you're changing your stance on faith. We are still in relationship. I love you and I'm not going anywhere. That's huge because they need to hear that when they're in this vulnerable spot. To hear that kind of affirmation from you is essential. So if we suspect somebody's faith is at risk, you could open, ask open-ended questions. He says, like, how are you doing these days spiritually? I'm curious. What's happening in your heart? And then if they do open up, it's really important to hear them out entirely without jumping in, without interrupting, without arguing. He references his first book, which Drew Dyke wrote, Generation X Christian, Why Young Adults Are Leaving the Faith and How to Bring Them Back. And he wrote that in 2010. He says, I've tracked dozens of mainly 20-somethings that had walked away from their faith, and it was a good practice for me because I love to argue and love to get in there and mix it up, but 
I was the journalist, so I had to bite my tongue and just listen to their entire story for an hour or two. And it was incredible to me because often when it comes up, someone jumps in and starts to argue with them rather than hearing out their story. And often the very first things they say aren't the real issues. They have inle- might have an intellectual objection to the faith, but when you dig in and hear the story, something about their faith journey, they had an awful experience, perhaps in their childhood, probably in the church, and maybe that's the core issue. So it's really important to get the full story, he says, at first, without arguing and without judgment, so that you can have productive conversation later. So somebody said... Well, what if they've left the church and they decided they're not Christian anymore and that's their final word? He says, obviously, if somebody has totally rejected the faith and walked away and made that announcement, it's hard to get them back, come back to church and open back up to faith. I'm not going to pretend it isn't discouraging and heartbreaking, but it's also not hopeless. If that person at one point was a passionate believer and really ascribed to these things and then changed their mind, who's to say they won't change their mind again in the future? I have somebody I pray for. I see every so often out on the golf course, and he was an avid Christian as a teenager and has since walked away from the Lord. And yet here he'll hang out with a preacher every so often. Well, a couple of weeks ago, at the end of the 18 holes, he said, hey, let's take a minute and pray. Oh, wow. Okay, let's do. And that's what also uh, Drew found here in his interviews with these self-described ex-Christians. That's one of the questions he would ask. Do you still pray? And amazingly, most of them said yes. Now, when he heard them pray, some of them were angry, very honest, desperate sort of prayers. He says, but I was encouraged because they were still praying that God is still working in people's hearts even when it seems like they have left. So God hasn't given up on them. Let's not give up either. God is that good shepherd that leaves the 99 to go searching for the one. So we need to have the same heart and the same commitment, and keep the same hope. In fact, he points out that there's been an acceleration in the number of people in the West claiming no religion. In 1990, it was 11% of American population. In 2010, it was 22% that claimed no religion. Today, it's somewhere between 34 and 36%. Among millennials, it's over 50%. So that's where for us to get too picky about how we dress or the kind of music or what kind of style we have when the world around us needs Christ. It's so important to keep our eyes on the most important things. What he found, and I found, found this encouraging, he said that many of these people have grown up in Christian homes and they have left the faith of their childhood, but they gradually drifted away. They found 71%, according to one Pew study, reported that they had just gradually drifted away. In other words, they didn't have any huge barrier to belief. They aren't angry at God or have huge intellectual objections to Christian belief and practice. They just need a Christian friend or a family member to come alongside them and kind of encourage them back into church and into a relationship with Christ. So keep communication open. And he said the words that come to mind were empathy and curiosity. To, remain, to maintain the relational bond so that when the person is having a crisis, they know they can turn to you and you're safe. He said, what advice do you give to parents? He says, well, you don't want the relationship they have with you to be a referendum on God. So you have to be very careful and be affirming and loving. And it's hard, but you need to stay gentle and sensitive and open. 
So keep yourself passionately following Jesus Christ because ultimately the best apologetic is a life lived for Christ. You know, we can end up asking ourselves when our kids walk away from Christ, what have I done wrong? Where have I failed? And maybe we have, but God is still at work. And recently I prayed with a parent. He said, you know, I have a kid that grew up knowing all about Jesus, going to church, then has walked away, but now is having a life-threatening condition. And so we prayed together, Lord, use this crisis to bring this person back to you. He's out looking. He's that shepherd looking for the lost sheep. Cindy and I have been reading <clears throat> this book by Jim Burns. I don't have time to tell you about it, but doing life with your adult children. Keep your mouth shut and the welcome mat out. <clears throat> I'll leave it up here if you want to come look at it. Um, afterwards, he has some good things to say. It's the whole picture that we find in Luke 15. Sorry, we took so long to get there of the prodigal father and his sons. Prodigal, of course, means wasteful, but it also means lavish. And in the story, the father is lavish. He, at his son's bizarre request to say, give me my inheritance now before you die, the father splits things with his sons and gives his son who wants it, his share of the inheritance. And the son leaves and goes off to the far country. Now, there are limits. The father was very, very generous, but he didn't chase the son down. He didn't ask him to change his mind. He, he, he didn't send somebody to the far country. He didn't compromise his beliefs. And when you look at the story, you see that the father is at home praying. He's waiting. I think he's sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair. And you know what he's thinking about? He's not thinking about regrets. He's not thinking about angry thoughts. He's not thinking about how unfair his kid was or how ungrateful or a whole lot of stuff that we think. He's thinking about real love. And would he ever have a chance to show real love again? even though it's completely undeserved. So he doesn't chase his kid to the far country. He just waits patiently at home without answers, without knowing, but he gets his heart ready. And when his son shows up as a shadow way down the road, well, it says in Luke 15, his father saw him and he felt compassion. He ran to him and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. You know, too much introspection, too much second guessing robs us of energy to get on with it. You've probably made your mistakes. So have I. Give them to God. Draw the line. Ask for forgiveness if necessary, and then keep moving forward with Jesus Christ. And redirect your energies to dream again, because the dream that you had isn't everything. Remember, you've been blessed with a lot more than that. Your history, your marriage, your family, your job, your ministry, your children. Your dream is more than that. And when your dream dies, you still have a whole lot left. So as Paul said it then in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. St. Francis prayed it this way, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace shall we pray? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can even take a few moments to reflect on that word. 
and to see your little picture of offering yourself your life-giving blood to cover our sin. So even as we enter into this moment, speak to us, we pray. Amen.